Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. Tonight on The Readout... This is a police photograph of James W. McCord. He is one of five persons surprised and arrested yesterday inside the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in Washington. McCord is a former CIA employee. Now he runs his own private security service. And guess what else he is? A consultant to President Richard Nixon's re-election campaign committee. Nixon's Watergate scandal began 50 years ago today. Like Trump, his presidency ended in crime and chaos. But there were major differences in the methods the two presidents used to cling to power. Also tonight, the unholy alliance between Ginny Thomas and the people plotting to overturn the presidential election. A member of Congress who's now calling for her husband, Justice Clarence Thomas, to resign joins me. We begin tonight with June 17, 1972. The day five bungling burglars broke into the offices of the Democratic National Committee, located in the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. Two years later, President Nixon resigned. The 50th anniversary of Watergate comes as public hearings are underway by the House Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Two major political scandals, nearly half a century apart, two presidents driven by a thirst for power. Unlike Trump, Nixon pulled his scandal despite being on a comfortable path to re-election, and his efforts to meddle were more secretive than the very public, brazen attempts by Trump, who relied on the cameras and the internet to provoke his capital siege. Let's not forget that Trump pressured Vice President Pence privately, too, bullied him even. And while Nixon was a bully, too, just behind the scenes, he never set up his vice president for execution. Trump, however, did exactly that relentlessly badgering Pence to break the law, incorrectly claiming that the vice president had the power to unilaterally overrule the votes of 80 million people and reverse the results of the election, saying if he didn't, he was a coward or the colloquial word for a kitty. It was as Trumpian as it gets, filled with taunts, harassment and lies. I hope Mike is going to do the right thing. I hope so. I hope so. Because if Mike Pence does the right thing, we win the election. Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country because you're sworn to uphold our Constitution. At 2.24 p.m. on January 6th, Trump condemned Pence in a tweet just as the crowds outside and inside the Capitol surged. This is what Sarah Matthews, a former Trump press aide, said in an interview with panel investigators about that crucial moment. It was clear that it was escalating and escalating quickly. So then when that tweet, the Mike Pence tweet, um, was sent out, um, 
I remember us saying that that was the last thing that needed to be tweeted at that moment. The situation was already bad. And so it felt like he was pouring gasoline on the fire by tweeting that. On Thursday, the January 6th committee revealed in vivid, terrifying detail just when the target was seared onto the vice president's back. I'm hearing reports that Pence caved. I'm telling you, if Pence caved, we're going to drag mother through the streets. You politicians are going to get drugged through the streets. But a traitor and he deserves to burn with the rest of them. Now, remember, this attack came with bloodshed, what a Capitol officer called carnage. They erected a gallows outside the building, fit for a lynching. And the third hearing revealed that the Proud Boys would indeed have killed the vice president if given the chance, forcing Pence's security detail to rush him from the Senate chamber to a nearby room, then down a flight of stairs to an underground loading dock where he waited for nearly five hours. It is hard to imagine a bigger scandal than the one that forced an American vice president to literally hide in a basement as a mob just dozens of feet away called for his head. But the scandals we remember, that history remembers, are the ones, like Watergate, that result in meaningful consequences. Today, new details emerge from the January 6th committee. It is now cooperating with the Department of Justice to share transcripts of their interviews. Two days after the DOJ sent the committee a letter saying it was critical that the committee provide transcripts of all witness interviews. Consequences may be coming. Joining me now is Michael Steele, MSNBC political analyst and former RNC chair. And Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian and host of Fireside History on Peacock. We like to think of Michael as our, Michael Beschloss as our resident uh, historian as well. So, Michael, I'm going right. to let you go Thank at you. it. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to let you go at it because th- these are the parallels, right? Both presidents wanted to remain president, wanted to cling to power. They had two very different methods. But, I, you know, I personally feel that setting up your vice president for execution takes it uh, a notch higher than Watergate. But I'm going to leave it to you. You're the historian. No, I think it does take it a notch higher than Watergate. And, you know, I grew up always thinking that Watergate was a terrible scandal and maybe the worst American political history. And until Donald Trump, it probably was. But Richard Nixon never dreamt of doing things like disrupting the peaceful transfer of power, which, as both of you well know, is the foundation stone of American democracy. Uh, And also, uh, just as you're saying, uh, he didn't like Spiro Agnew. Uh, I'm not going to call Spiro Agnew uh, Michael Steele's fellow Republican in Maryland. Uh, Michael has uh, uh, evolved quite a lot since uh, he was in Maryland (laughs) uh, politics in those days. Uh, He was, I I should say, long after Spiro Agnew. Uh, But the point is that Nixon didn't like him. Nixon wanted to get rid of him, but never wanted to go to this extent. And the point is that Richard Nixon, as bad as he was, if we're talking about peaceful transfer of power, look at what he did in 1960. He lost to John Kennedy. That election, as you both know, uh, was decided by two states, Texas and Illinois. Texas, 45,000 votes, 9,000 votes in Illinois. Nixon was convinced till the end of his life that those two states were stolen from him. Yet, when it came to certifying the votes, 
Vice President Nixon on the 6th of January, 1961, went into the House chamber and graciously said, John Kennedy has been elected president of the United States. And one of the great features of democracy, he said, is that when there is a winner and a loser, the loser admits it and the loser says to the country, let's unite. Yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, Michael Steele, in one way, you know, the difference between Nixon and Trump is that Nixon was a patriot. You know, you can say whatever else you want about him, but he yeah. had the dignity to resign, right? In the end, uh, he loved his country more than he loved himself. Uh, that is not true of Trump. But, I, you know, I, I want to talk to you just a little bit about kind of the trajectory, because I do feel like a lot of Republican Party politics was shaped, you know, in the post-Nixon era by a resentment toward Nixon being forced out. You know, I, I, to this day, will swear that, you know, the impeachment of Bill Clinton was in part a chance to sort of balance the checkbook. There was determination to impeach Bill Clinton. No matter what, you're going to look for something because they want to balance the checkbooks. You had people like Roger Stone that came out of the Nixon era that thought you could just get a better version of Nixon. And he explicitly said, there's a documentary called Get Me Roger Stone, where he says Trump would be the perfect new Nixon. And I feel like Nixon really shaped the kind of resentment politics, not to mention the racial politics of the Republican Party. What do you think? No, I, I think that's a, a very accurate historical uh, point. In fact, not just uh, Nixon uh, being balanced uh, by what we see going on, uh, what we saw going on with Clinton, but also when you go back and you look at the Bork a nomination and Merrick Garland is payback for Bork and, and all the uh, efforts beneath the surface, the other uh, efforts that we've seen play out in stalling and, and pushing back against uh, Democrats on Supreme Court nominations. So there is, you know, there, we're nothing if not petty. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that that I think that that's clear historically at this point. We we we're the elephant symbol for a for a moment for a reason because we do remember. The slight memory uh, and, and, and the uh, uh, the, uh, you know, unfortunate uh, knocks upside the head. But the difference, though, I think it's important to point out, as Michael did, um, the difference between these two men. Nixon had a connection to the country. Yeah. Say what you want about, in, you know, how he performed in, in office. Um, he had a connection to the country and he knew where the bright lines were. Trump didn't give a damn about the connection to the country, had no clue where the lines were. In fact, didn't want to know where the lines were because that was just an unnecessary burden he'd have to carry around uh, to know that, OK, I got to pretend like, you know, I really care here. Um, so there's a big difference. And what's stark about that, in my view, is how much the party, how much the party just acquiesced to obliterating the lines, no longer yeah. caring about the country, uh, which is what the stand was for me personally in 2020. The country matters more than the party. And, and yeah. I think a lot of people see that now starkly as this hearings uh, on the Hill have shown. You know, and, and Michael Bachelors, I mean, Nixon did usher in the Southern strategy, which took the whole idea of resentment and racial resentment and weaponized it. Um, but he didn't have Fox News. He didn't have right wing media. He didn't have Breitbart. He didn't have that ecosystem that could turbocharge that to the point now where you do have a group of Americans who believe that any election that is decided largely on the basis of what minority voters want is illegitimate 
period, and that they don't have to accept, and they actually don't need to accept it. I, I want to play Donald Trump. This is Donald Trump in October of 2020, this is October, before the election, making it clear that he really didn't believe that he necessarily had to accept an election he didn't win. Take a look. Right. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I and, understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit oh, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful transfer of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer. Frankly, there'll be a continuation. There'll be a continuation. At this point, retired federal judge Michael Ludic, who's about as conservative as they come, he was he would have had, uh, I believe, the Alito seat if, if um, previous president right. had wanted it, said that Donald Trump and his allies and supporters are a clear and present danger to American democracy. They're executing that blueprint for 2024 in open and plain view of the American public. I've never uttered one single one of those words unless the former president and his allies were candidly and proudly speaking those exact words to America. Have we crossed a threshold? Threshold? where one of our political parties is actually a danger to our democracy. We have, uh, because uh, the majority of the Republican Party voters and uh, also leadership seems to support Donald Trump, even though on the 6th of January last year, he almost took our democracy away. You know, I always grew up thinking that conservatives were people who were love, who loved our American institutions, you know, like elections and, mm -hmm. you know, the way that the political system works. This is not a conservative party anymore. This is a party of radicals who want to destroy. And, you know, the fact that Judge Ludwig could, have, Ludwig could have come so far as to say something like that after being the darling of conservatives uh, for decades, I think almost says it all. Yeah, I mean, and they've ruined the, 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 the great name of the radical Republican. Because radical Republican actually was a good thing, right. like, in the 18th century. Yeah, radicals who were keeping a, on Lincoln, Lincoln's back to make sure he was tough on the South, as he should have been. Don't get me started on Hannibal Hamlin. I'll do a whole hour on Hannibal Hamlin. Don't get me started. Don't threaten me with a okay. good time. Um, but either, <laughs> we're going to do that one day. I'm obsessed with Hannibal Hamlin. Um, you know, let's talk— a, a little bit, you know, Michael, Michael Steele, because, you know, we're at a point now where w this is what makes me nervous. There was a Yahoo YouGov poll that said half of all Americans, and this is whether you're a Democrat mm -hmm. or Republican, now predict the United States may cease to be a democracy someday. And I wish they'd asked the follow-up question, are you okay with that? Because a new survey um, conducted after the first hearing found that fewer than one in four, 24 percent, said they watched the initial primetime broadcast live, nearly half, half, said they're not following these hearings at all. I'm not sure that we have enough of a critical mass of Americans that care whether we're a democracy or, or not. There are much, many more people, I think, out there who don't necessarily care one way or another. They just really want to know what's going to be the price of gas and do they get what they want when they vote for Trump or, you know, whatever other Republican they prefer. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm going to try to do my best uh, Ari Melber, but I won't, in, in trying to recall the, 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 the song that goes, you know, you're going to miss me when I'm gone, right? Um, <laughs> and that's basically what democracy is saying to us right now as a country. Maybe how, how can I miss mi you if you won't go away? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> There's that too. Sorry, um, sorry. No, no, but that's but that's you know essentially what the what the country is saying, what democracy say, saying to the people of this country right now. You're going to miss me when I'm gone. You know, you guys, yeah. you guys, yeah, I get your fixation on high gas prices and inflation. Yeah, and those are important. They really are. Yes. But you know, in the final analysis, when you're standing there at the pump 
um, you know, paying two dollars again for gasoline. But instead of going to the polling place, you have to go back home because you can't vote anymore or they strip the, the stripped your ability to do so freely. That's a problem. Yeah. And, and, and as you said, you only find out when it's too late, normally when democracies fall. Uh, uh, my, my favorite Michaels, Michael and Michael, Michael Steele and Michael Beschloss, uh, wishing you guys a wonderful, happy Juneteenth weekend. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. And you up too. next. Thank you, Joel. Thank you. And up next on the readout, after new revelations about the connections between Ginny Thomas and the people plotting the events of January 6th, a member of Congress is calling on her husband, Justice Clarence Thomas, to resign. He joins me next. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Please. The news this week that Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was communicating with John Eastman, a man accused of illegally trying to corrupt the democratic process, has once again cast a shadow over her husband's tenure on the court. This isn't the first time Mrs. Thomas's activism for conservative issues has landed the couple in hot water. Strangely, she's the only spouse of a sitting justice who remains politically active. Chief Justice John Roberts' wife gave up her law career and her work with a nonprofit anti-abortion group in order to help her husband avoid any appearance of conflicts of interest. The late Ruth Bader Ginsburg's husband, Marty Ginsburg, gave up his very successful law practice, so his wife was free from any conflicts as well. Not Ginny. Nope. She actively leaned into her political activism and launched a conservative consulting group whose clients have filed amicus briefs before the court her husband sits on. And Ginny Thomas's role in aggressively and repeatedly advocating for an undemocratic and illegal reversal of an election really calls into question Justice Thomas's impartiality. The justice did, after all, say that he and his wife are melded as one. And by sheer coincidence, Justice Thomas was the lone dissent in the Supreme Court's January order rejecting Trump's bid to withhold documents from the January 6th panel. The court has refused to weigh in on the growing crisis of confidence. And frankly, they probably never will because the court is held to a different standard, which basically is no standard at all. They're basically untouchable. Well done, founders. In the meantime, the public is losing patience and faith. A recent poll showed that 73% of Americans believe that the justices should be bound to the code of ethics that all other federal judges are required to follow. And yesterday, Democratic Congressman Bill Pascrell of New Jersey said, quote, Clarence Thomas cannot possibly be seen as a neutral actor, but instead as a corrupt jurist who has poisoned the high court. Clarence Thomas should have dignity and final respect for our, our democracy and resign. 
Congressman Pascrell joins me now. Um, given the fact that he's shown, thank you so much. Well, given the fact that he's shown no interest in cleaning up this appearance of conflict going all the way back. I mean, I'm going to put up on the screen Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny. She's publicly advocated over the years for repealing the Affordable Care Act. He voted to appeal the Affordable Care Act. She's uh, jumped on tr Donald Trump's Islamophobic travel ban. He voted to uphold Trump's Islamophobic travel ban. She's advocated to overturn the 2020 election. He voted, as I just mentioned, to withhold documents, repealing Roe v. Wade. He supports repealing Roe v. Wade. Gun restrictions. He's in, he doesn't want them. Uh, he is he he has voted in favor of overturning D.C.'s ban on guns and reversing transgender rights. He's not for him. And he's voted as such. I mean, they track. He's never shown any inkling to resign. Why do you suppose he would now? Well, you know, Joy, <laughs> no one is above the law. I think we've already established that in this country, that there is no way out if the law says this is what you need to do. And I'll read you what the law says. You come to your own conclusion. And that is uh, the law says any justice judge or magistrate judge of the United States shall disqualify himself in any proceeding in which the impartiality might, might reasonably be questioned. Now, we know that the judge. Uh, on the Supreme Court, Mr. Thomas, has already made decisions on whether or not cases would be heard uh, at, in front of the Supreme Court, talking about all these fraudulent activities with 62 judges through the heck out. And they're coming before the Supreme Court, and they want to come before the Supreme Court. And he did not recuse himself, even though his wife, which he has every right to do, but it's his wife, and he is a very special person on the court. The law is clear, and I believe that he does not deserve to serve on the court if the law says he can't, if there are problems, and there are problems and major problems here, Judge. Are, are, so are you implying that he's broken the law? Yes. The law how says he be very clearly. Mm -hmm. That's why I read it. But how, opinion, how would he be? How would he be held to account? Because we have separation of powers. The Justice Department is in the executive branch. He is in obviously the judicial branch. The separation of power. It, it it feels like the way that the court was built. He is basically untouchable. Are you saying that who would prosecute him? And do you think Merrick Garland would? Supreme Court, Supreme court will have to be judge and jury. They take care of their own internal matters. But Mr. Thomas should have at the time recused himself when before his wife's messages to Mark Meadow came out, all 230 some of them. And we find out that was a very interesting relationship. But, they're, you know, they're going home at night with each other. And I don't believe and nobody else believes and it doesn't matter what I believe or you believe on this. It's what the law says. He yeah. should have refused himself. His wife is not an escape hatch for him. Last question. Do you believe that he should be impeached? And do you think there's a chance he would be impeached by, by, by the House? 
even if the Senate wouldn't convict him? Well, the, the point of the matter is that is what the Supreme Court has decided because there's nothing written in the law that somebody else is going to oversee this. The court would have to take care of itself. Themselves. And okay. within it, with, it may not ask him to resign. It, it would ask him to recuse himself from the things that are brought before the court that should not right. be. Now, look, this has been a treacherous trail, Joy, from the very beginning. Yes, it has. Yeah. For I don't think anyone disagrees back. with you. I don't think anyone four disagrees with you. Back. Congressman Bill, Bill Pascrell, thank you, you so much for being up, here. Really appreciate you, you being here. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. All right. Well, you've heard him. Well, the city uh, still ahead, the city of Uvalde hires a private law firm to try to prevent the release of records related to the Robb Elementary School shooting, saying they could be highly embarrassing. You think? We'll be right back. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home. Today marks seven years since the attack on Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, where nine people lost their lives to a hate-filled gunman who slaughtered them at Bible study. Just last night in Alabama, there was another shooting at a church. Three people were killed. We've now had 56 mass shootings since the horrific massacre at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas last month. That is more than two mass shootings per day. There are still many unanswered questions about the police response in Uvalde. Late today, the New York Times reported that an Uvalde police officer armed with an AR-15 style rifle actually had a chance to shoot the gunman before he entered the school, but chose not to take the shot out of fear of hitting a student. That is according to what the officer told a senior sheriff's deputy. And this afternoon, after initially refusing to cooperate, the Uvalde Police Department has agreed to testify before a House committee tasked with investigating the police response, according to Texas officials. Meanwhile, instead of setting the record straight about what happened, multiple other agencies are pushing the Uvalde County District Attorney to prevent records of the deadly shooting from being released, potentially for months or even longer. And they're apparently trying to use a loophole in the law to do it. Joining me now is Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, who represents Uvalde, and Lexi Churchill, research reporter for ProPublica and the Texas Tribune Investigative Unit. Thank you both um, for being here. And I want to start with you, Senator Gutierrez. I mean, what we've had now is the Uvalde County District Attorney, um, and her name is Christina Michael Busby, saying that she will not be holding a news conference or releasing anything to the public, keeping everything very private until the Texas Rangers and the FBI finish their investigation, which would take several months. She's talking about six months at the earliest. That means after the election. Do you feel that there's been um, 
essentially a, a cover-up, a standoff? Uh, are people stonewalling, in your view? Uh, well, Joy, up until June 2nd, we were getting pretty regular information from DPS, the Department of Public Safety. And then at that point, my last text to the with the DPS director was that he had been ordered not to speak by Miss Mitchell Busby. As of yesterday, she claims that she's not uh, overseeing an investigation. That's what she told the local ABC affiliate. And so it's just been this back and forth. Last Sunday, she went on in the local Uvalde paper to describe her investigation. So uh, it's say, suggesting that it was going to take six months. There's certainly lots of confusion, but uh, lots of obfuscation, lots of lying, lots of half-truths. Uh, yesterday, and, and she what told, it, again, you go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. She told the station she, told the station she was protecting the families yesterday. Um, mm. You know, the fact is, I've talked to 17 families that want to know the truth. They want to know the truth. And what do you make, Senator, of this new news that there was an officer who had an AR-15, who had the kind of firepower that the gunman had, uh, didn't take the shot? I mean, I, you know, I, when my producer told me this, I'm thinking to myself, it's legal to carry an AR-15 in Texas. I'm wondering, how would you know who to shoot if somebody was just carrying yeah. one? It's legal to open carry. Well, th that's right. Exactly. And, you know, that's uh, one of the things that I said last year when we when these guys passed open carry. Unfortunately, the last thing I said that because of this bill, kids are going to die. I never would have thought that that was going to actually realize in my own community. Uh, there's a lot of malfeasance going on here. And unfortunately, it's with law enforcement and this district attorney's office. We need to get to the bottom of this. Uh, indeed. Uh, Ms. Churchill, welcome to the show. Um, the Texas Tribune and ProPublica together have submitted nearly 70 public records requests for everything from 911 uh, recordings, death records, ballistic records, etc. Have you gotten any of the things? Uh, have your Has your outlet or ProPublica, to your knowledge, gotten any of the information you've requested? Not so far, Joy. The only record, to my knowledge at this point, that's been released was earlier this week by Governor Greg Abbott, who released his written notes that he had taken before that initial press conference um, that he later mentioned as proof that he was misled. And it, the records do seem to show that he received information that uh, an officer had initially engaged with the shooter from from earlier on in the uh, shooting that happened. So that has been the only record that's been released to my knowledge. But I think it's notable that, as you said, we've submitted almost 70 requests. Two of them have also been to the governor's office for emails and communications from that week. And he's fighting that request, although he did release the records to another station that requested them. And we've we've gotten them as well. But I think uh, it just shows the discretion that the state public information act really allows these agencies. Uh, right. Because to it, it does seem that what the governor released, it was meant to exonerate him for doing that press conference where he was festooned with police officers and praised them. He released the stuff that says, well, that wasn't my fault, right? It doesn't seem like he's releasing things that would really help. Um, it, the Texas House Speaker has tweeted this, that they're using something called the dead suspect loophole. Um, and, and this is what the Texas House Speaker tweeted. More than anything, the families of Uvalde victims need honest answers and transparency, period. It would be absolutely unconscionable to use the dead suspect loophole to thwart the release of information that's so badly needed and deserved right now. Um, and, and under that dead suspect loophole, um, Senator, law enforcement records that deal with an investigation that doesn't result in a conviction doesn't have to be made public because the suspect is dead. Is that what's being used to keep the families from knowing what happened? 
Uh, yes, unfortunately, I, I suppose that that's what the district attorney is, is alluding to. Unfortunately, every time that a reporter tries to get any information from her, she runs away. Uh, and, and so far as the Speaker of the House is concerned, you know, he's he can go off and have open meetings. He doesn't have to have these cloister uh, behind the scenes meetings or uh, that, that are done in executive session. I mean, they can do that if they so chose. Uh, unfortunately, we're in this space where you know, neither the Speaker of the House or the Lieutenant Governor are going to let us know any information that uh, the public has a right to know. And Ms. Churchill, I've also just heard sort of anecdotal reports and reports from people who, like yourself, have been on television that the families are not necessarily um, accessible to journalists, even if they want to be. Is that true? Has there been any attempt to sort of keep families from talking, the families of the victims? I can't speak to that as much directly, but I know there had been reporting that police officers and various other people were keeping reporters on the ground away from funerals specifically in the few weeks since the shooting has happened. And, and do you get a sense that just as somebody, as a journalist who's trying to report on what happened, that you've gotten enough information to be able to accurately report on what happened inside that school? Definitely not, Joy. I mean, there's been so little, as the senator mentioned, so little from public officials since that initial week. And so much of that was contradictory and has since been corrected or, you know, sidestepped at this point that, you know, we were really hoping to get some of these records that aren't filtered through public officials and, you know, showing us their the perspective that they want us to see. It's just that raw information that we were hoping to get some clear answers from that that we're not getting now. And I do want to note, you know, you mentioned some of the requests that we had uh, put in earlier as far as some traditional things like 911 calls and incident reports, but we've also had pushback to other requests that are really typically uh, records that we would have access to. Usually one of my colleagues on the ground wasn't allowed to view campaign finance reports, which is a really Mm. typically available uh, type of record. So we're really seeing a lot of sweeping pushback as far as public records go, at least. Well, we are going to stay on this story. Uh, and I thank you, Texas Senator Roland Gutierrez. I know you are all over it. And so we're hopefully you will come back. And Lexi Churchill, uh, you as well, because we do want to keep following up on what happened in Uvalde. Thank you both. Up next, the big payback. A thought-provoking new documentary looks at arguments for and against reparations. Co-directors Erica Alexander and Whitney Dow and the focus of the film, activist Robin Bruce Simmons, join us next. Sunday commemorates the newest federal holiday, Juneteenth, recognizing the emancipation of enslaved black Americans. It's been more than 30 years, meanwhile, since the late Congressman John Conyers first introduced a bill to study reparations for descendants of enslaved people, known as H.R. 40, now sponsored by Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee. Every Congress since 1989 has failed to pass it. Last year, H.R. 40 got further than ever, passing the House Judiciary Committee, but it remains stalled. While Congress languishes on addressing the wrongs inflicted on generations of black Americans, cities and states are taking action. Last year, Evanston, Illinois, became the first city to issue slavery reparations, a $10 million project funded with revenue from recreational marijuana sales. The new documentary, The Big Payback, follows the fight of Alderman Robin Rue Simmons to obtain that big payback for black residents of Evanston and Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee's fight to pass H.R. 40. We were so excited when we saw the legislation 
In fact, we have used it in presentations that we've made. Wow. I use your outstanding construct. You've been, Councilmember, a real hero, Shiro to me. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Being a member of National League of Cities, Mm -hmm. you know, we learned that all government starts locally. Mm -hmm. And the thought was, why not do what we can do here at a local level while HR 40 is working through its process, through your leadership? We could have layers of repair and layers of remedy because, as we know, those damages, yes, we're rooted in slavery, but, you know, it looked like discrimination even still today because the color of our dark skin. Last week, I joined Simmons and Congresswoman Jackson Lee, along with co-directors, actress Erica Alexander and filmmaker Whitney Dow, for the premiere of The Big Payback at the Tribeca Film Festival. And I should mention that my husband Jason and I are also among the co-executive producers of that film. And I'm joined now by The Big Payback directors Erica Alexander and Whitney Dow and Robin Rue Simmons, former Fifth Ward alderman in Evanston, Illinois, and founder and executive director of First Repair. Thank you all for being here. Uh, And I have to start with you, my friend, Erica Alexander. Talk about the genesis of this film. Yes. um, Thank you so much for having us on The Big Payback. The genesis is that it's a documentary about reparations. Obviously, it's directed by me and uh, a white male co-conspirator and collaborator, Whitney Dow, (laughs) and is following the historic stories of Alder woman, Robin Ruth Simmons and Congresswoman uh, Sheila Jackson Lee. We started this at the initial hearings in 2019. And then we heard about what Robin Ruth Simmons did and we totally pivoted and got there to start filming her where we witnessed her um, beginning to implement the groundbreaking local bill in Evanston as the first tax funded reparations bill in America. And that's what we did. And we also have been following Congresswoman Lee um, leading the 30 year fight to pass the national study in, um, in Congress. And Whitney, I know you from the Whiteness Project. That is how we met. Um, used to speak to my classes uh, when I used to teach at Syracuse. And uh, why did you think it was important for a, a white filmmaker like yourself um, to be involved in a project that was about reparations? Why should white audiences care about this? Well, we created the situation. It's our job to solve it, right? I mean, we created uh, slavery. We created the structural racism that disenfranchised black Americans for generations. And I really feel like, I hope that uh, when audiences watch this film, they see a place for them in this story and that they need to, you know, step up to the plate and participate in the repair. Absolutely. And Robin, you know, we follow you. We get to know you and your your, your daughter, your family through this film. Uh, talk about the fight, because it was a fight um, to try to not only get the reparations project in, in place, but also to have the recipients in the community of Evanston accept it as reparations. Talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So there was really no pushback in our city on passing reparations and beginning the process. But as we got into identifying and prioritizing the harm, there comes the challenge because there is such great harm. A a portfolio of remedies are needed and to choose one and move forward with that, as you will see in the documentary, uh, it is challenging. And so there's really no right or wrong. All of it is needed. And in municipalities, we have far less capacity. We have more of a specific harm and the repair will need to be in direct correlation to the harm. And so in Evanston, we started with housing because our harm is specifically in anti-Black zoning laws and housing practices. 
And Robin, you know, I, I want to talk about how it goes from here, because, you know, I, the, the, the fight for HR 40 is actually still going on. I know that you now do this work full time. Um, there, there's a headline here. There's a coalition called We Why We Can't Wait. It's a coalition that's urging the president um, to use, you know, his executive authority um, to start a reparation study. And it's a coalition. It's a human rights and racial justice coalition that sent this letter to Biden, uh, asked him to issue this executive order to create a commission to study reparations nationally. The, just from having gone through this fight, what do you think it will take to move the fight forward, to move H.R. 40 out of committee uh, and into passage? Well, we stand in solidarity with that group. Uh, Many of us have the same expectation of President Biden at this point. Um, We need to take action. There are now over 100 localities that have passed some form of a local reparations initiative, and Congress and our president should be hearing from these cities and states all across this nation that are calling for reparations. Uh, We are standing hopeful that he will do the right thing and sign by executive order. Uh, But we see the challenges, how uh, this nation is regressing with voter rights issues and um, uh, critical race theory and so on. Um, And it would be the statement that we need to hear from our president and this administration to pass H.R. 40, that it is not just a ceremonial commitment to black lives, but it is an actionable commitment to black lives and redress with passing reparations. And I want to note that California, there's a task force suggesting reparations in a report um, detailing lasting harms of slavery in California. It's the first state to adopt a law, the first statewide um, law to study reparations proposals. It's the reparations task force. It's a 500 page interim report that's come out uh, detailing those harms. So there is movement on this issue. You know, Erica, the other thing that happens in this film is that we really get to know Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. You know, I knew obviously knew her as a guest that I've had on the show, but we really got to know her in this film. What is the importance of her place in history? Um, she's carrying on where John Conyers left off, but she's part of a very long line of people who have been in the fight since we had Reconstruction and it failed. So you're talking about people like Callie House and Queen Mother Moore and um, John Foreman. Um, We've had a lot of people doing this work and now we have a new group of people, NARC and and, um, several people that are not only continuing that fight, but helping her to stimulate from the outside and get that going because uh, she needs help. She needs our help on the, on the, uh, on the outside. And that's what they're doing. Absolutely. I, I know there's a free screening at the Apollo theater on Sunday, I think at 5 yes. uh, PM. So people should come out and check it out. Um, you, there's some ice cream involved. If you go, if you go, it's going to be good. That's um, right. The Ben and Jerry's is our, one of our partners. Yes. Uh, yes. On Sunday, go to colorfarmmedia.com for more information. Doors open at five at the Apollo. See you on Juneteenth. All right. Best ice cream ever. Erica Alexander, Whitney Dow and Robin Rue Simmons. Thank you all very much. Appreciate y'all. Okay. And up next, a very special edition of Who of the Week. Don't miss it. All right, everybody, we made it to Friday, which can only mean one thing. It is time to play. And this week, I do hereby declare that the winner of the week is you. You won the week because for the first time in American history, it is a national Juneteenth holiday weekend. That means you won the week. But also because on actual Juneteenth, this Sunday, June 19th, the first of four specials dreamed up by my MSNBC baby sister, Tiffany Cross and me called The Culture is Black Women premieres on MSNBC and Peacock. Roll the clip. 
I look at this table and these amazing women sitting across this table and I know everybody has earned their right to be yes. here, you know, beautifully placed at this table. And still somebody can come in here and question our place at this table. Mm -hmm. So with that, I'd like to bring in Maria Taylor to the conversation. (laughs) Because, young sister, we know that you earned your place, despite what others may say. I'm just curious because you've been in the line of fire and we didn't know you, but we knew you. (laughs) We knew your story. You were our sister immediately. So how have you managed being in that line of fire and handle it with such grace and Success. The thing that keeps coming to my mind is like, I just wish that there was a world in which, you know, everything that a black woman did, someone wasn't coming to dim that light or blow it out. Like, I wish that there was someone there fanning our flames. Now, in addition to that tea uh, and my old hairstyle, this special also includes Nicole Hannah-Jones, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, comedian Robin Thede, and the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, plus many, many more. Join me and Tiffany Cross for The Culture is Black Women Sunday night at 10 p.m. Eastern, right here on MSNBC and streaming on Peacock. And that's it. That is tonight's readout. Happy Juneteenth weekend, everybody. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.